Introduction Respiratory diseases are among the leading causes of death in young children worldwide, and respiratory symptoms are a complaint in the majority of pediatric sick visits. Although these symptoms are usually related to acute, most often viral, infection, they may be a consequence of congenital or acquired pulmonary disorders. Respiratory disorders specific to the newborn period, including bronchopulmonary dysplasia, are discussed in Chapter 2. The primary function of the lungs is the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide between the blood and the atmosphere. Many abnormalities can affect this exchange adversely, including airway obstruction, restrictive lung disease, decreased compliance of the lungs and or chest wall, ventilation perfusion mismatch, and abnormal respiratory control. Effective respiration requires proper interaction between the respiratory, cardiovascular, and central nervous systems, with adequate support from the musculoskeletal system. Diagnostic techniques in pediatric pulmonology A standard chest radiograph is a vitally important tool in the evaluation of children with respiratory disorders. Airway films provide visualization of the trachea and nasopharyngeal airway. Computed tomography, CT, studies yield more detailed information and can be combined with vascular contrast. Radiation dosage should be considered before ordering a CT scan. The images obtained are influenced by body position and stage of inspiration or exhalation. Pulmonary function testing measures lung volume and rates of airflow, permitting assessment of lung capacity and airway obstruction. Pulmonary function tests, PFTs, are generally performed only in patients old enough to cooperate, older than age 5 to 6 years. The data generated are dependent on patient effort and technique, and training of subjects is necessary before reproducible data are obtained. In older children, microscopic examination and culture of expectorated sputum may yield important information although the results are often somewhat equivocal due to contamination of the specimen with saliva or upper airway secretions. Bronchoscopy, the direct visual examination of the airways, is a powerful diagnostic tool for evaluation of airway structure and dynamics, as well as to obtain definitive specimens from the lower airways. Rigid or flexible instruments of appropriate size may be used. In general, flexible instruments are best for evaluation of the bronchi, but not for extraction of aspirated foreign bodies and airway dynamics. Rigid instruments give a more detailed image, but result in some anatomic distortion because the rigid instrument does not follow the anatomic pathway, and it is necessary to extend the neck and lift the mandible tongue base. Upper airway obstructive disease The upper airway extends from the nostril to the thoracic inlet. In general, obstruction of the upper airway leads to inspiratory obstruction, while obstruction below the thoracic inlet results in expiratory obstruction. Upper airway obstruction in the neonate young infant Coanal atresia or stenosis, narrowing of the nasal passages, can be life-threatening in newborns, who are obligate nose breathers. Mandibular hypoplasia often results in posterior displacement of the tongue, glossoptosis. Some children, typically, with trisomy 21, have large, obstructive tongues. Vocal cord paralysis can be unilateral or bilateral, and congenital or, more frequently, acquired. Laryngeal webs are uncommon congenital lesions that may produce respiratory distress in the delivery room and often disappear following intubation. Laryngomalacia due to large, floppy arytenoid cotyledges or a floppy epiglottis is the most common cause of congenital stridor and usually resolves with growth over the first one to three years of life. Subglottic masses, hemangioma or cyst, may present in the first year of life. In the child with persistent stridor and a cutaneous hemangioma, a subglottic hemangioma should be suspected. Subglottic stenosis is rarely congenital. Acquired stenosis should be considered in any child who has been intubated, even transiently. 
children presenting in the first year of life with persistent strider and or hoarseness most likely have either vocal cord paralysis or laryngeal papillomatosis. Vascular compression of the trachea at the thoracic inlet by an anomalous vessel is a relatively common cause of upper airway obstruction in the first year of life. Clinical manifestations Clinical manifestations of upper airway obstruction include noisy inspiration, increased work of breathing, nasal flaring, use of accessory muscles, and retractions, especially suprasternal. The character and intensity of the noise depend on the structures involved, the degree of muscle tone, and the rate of airflow. In general, obstruction in the subglottic space results in a high-pitched, monophonic strider. Obstruction above the glottis produces a more variable, often fluttering strider which typically varies considerably with position of the head and neck. Upper airway obstruction is often more pronounced during feeding, especially in neonates. Diagnostic evaluation Diagnostic evaluation of upper airway obstruction involves assessment of the severity of the physiologic disturbance and identification of the etiology of the obstruction. Physiologic studies include pulse oximetry which measures oxygen saturation in peripheral blood, and blood gas analysis, which also measures blood pH and carbon dioxide level. During severe obstruction, oxygen saturation can remain within normal limits despite a significant rise in carbon dioxide levels. Patency of the nasal airway is confirmed by passage of a suction catheter through each nostril or by installation of radiographic contrast material. Radiographs of the nasopharynx and neck can be helpful, but flexible bronchoscopy is often required to definitively evaluate the anatomy and dynamics of the upper airway. The sound of the cough can yield important clues. Absence of a sharp, glottal stop, sound means that the vocal cords cannot close normally. Treatment Treatment of upper airway obstruction depends on the nature of the obstruction. Following definitive exclusion of more serious pathology, most infants with laryngomalacia or unilateral vocal cord paralysis need only be followed. If the airway obstruction is severe, e.g., hypoxemia, failure to thrive, feeding difficulties, provision of an artificial airway followed by surgical intervention may be warranted. In many patients, tracheostomy provides an effective and safe solution until more definitive treatment can be provided. Upper airway obstruction in the older child Children beyond the first year of life may have upper airway obstruction as a result of a congenital lesion, but acquired lesions are much more likely. Large adenoids and tonsils often result in inspiratory obstruction, with symptomatic exacerbations during periods of viral respiratory infection. Nasal obstruction can also be caused by a foreign body, polyps, or allergic rhinitis. There are many infectious causes of acute upper airway obstruction, such as acute laryngotracheitis and peritonsillar or retropharyngeal abscess. Obstructive sleep apnea. Many children have upper airway obstruction only during sleep, as a result of changes in upper airway muscle tone. Most have some degree of anatomic obstruction as well, i.e., large adenoids and or tonsils, or tongue base, glossoptosis or lingual tonsillar hypertrophy. Symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea, OSA, include restless sleep with frequent position changes, snoring that is irregular, especially with pauses and gasps, daytime somnolence, poor growth, behavioral problems, aneurysis, and poor academic performance. OSA associated with marked obesity, Pickwickian syndrome, can lead to chronic hypoventilation with severe complications, including pulmonary hypertension and congestive heart failure. Polysomnography is the diagnostic study of choice, measuring respiratory muscle activity, airflow, oxygenation, sleep stage, and heart rate. This test can define the degree and type of physiologic disturbance, whether central, obstructive, or mixed in nature. Treatment of OSA should be directed toward normalizing airway anatomy through the removal of enlarged tonsils and or adenoids, if indicated. If initial interventions fail and the degree of disturbance is significant, 
then continuous positive airway pressure, CPAP, is indicated. Severe, untreated OSA may lead to congestive heart failure and even death. Lower airway obstructive disease. The intrathoracic airways narrow during exhalation. Thus, any form of lower airway obstruction will be more apparent during exhalation. Wheezing is the sound of air squeezing past an intrathoracic obstruction of virtually any type. While most patients with asthma wheeze, not all patients who wheeze have asthma. There are two major lower airway obstructive diseases in childhood. Asthma and cystic fibrosis. Primary ciliary dyskinesia, a rarer entity, is also primarily an obstructive disease. Asthma. Asthma is a heterogeneous, chronic disorder of the airways characterized by reversible airway obstruction, inflammation, and bronchial hyperresponsiveness. The diagnosis is based on recurrence of symptoms and symptom responsiveness to bronchodilator and or anti-inflammatory agents. Bronchospasm, which results from smooth muscle constriction, may occur in response to allergic, environmental, infectious, or emotional stimuli, the trigger. Common precipitants include upper respiratory infections, pet dander, dust mites, weather changes, exercise, cigarette smoke, and seasonal or food allergens. Cellular mediators of inflammation are recruited to the lower airway mucosa and submucosal structures, inciting mucus production and mucosal edema, and further increasing airway hyperresponsiveness. The inflammatory response typically involves both immediate and late-phase components. It is the latter that results in the prolonged nature of an asthma exacerbation. Asthma severity is classified based on the degree of impairment prior to initiation of appropriate therapy, tables 8 to 1 and 8 to 2. Following initiation of treatment, asthma control is monitored in two domains, impairment, current symptoms and lung function, and risk, future exacerbations and medication side effects, tables 8 to 3 and 8 to 4. Assessing and maintaining control is now considered more important than assigning severity classification. Additional information regarding the 2007 Expert Panel Report 3 Guidelines for the Diagnosis and Treatment of Asthma can be found at www.nhlibi.nih.gov slash guidelines slash asthma slash index.htm. Epidemiology Asthma is the most frequently encountered pulmonary disease in children, and its prevalence is on the rise despite advances in therapy. As many as 15% to 20% of children in the United States will be diagnosed with asthma at some point in time. In some high-risk populations, Black and Hispanics, the prevalence can reach 25%. It is among the most common reasons for hospitalization in pediatric practice. More than 50% of patients present before 6 years of age. Boys are affected more often than girls prior to adolescence. Thereafter, the ratio is reversed. Risk factors Risk factors for the development of asthma include genetic predisposition, parent, S with asthma or allergy, atopy, cigarette smoke exposure, living in urban areas in poverty, an African-American race and Puerto Rican ethnicity. Upper respiratory tract infections with certain viruses, including rhinovirus and respiratory syncytial virus, that occur in genetically susceptible children at certain critical times in early life are also thought to play a critical role. Differential diagnosis When a child presents with wheezing and respiratory distress, the differential diagnosis includes intraluminal inflammation or failure to clear secretions, bronchiolitis, gastroesophageal reflux with aspiration, cystic fibrosis, tracheoesophageal fistula, primary ciliary dyskinesia, intraluminal mass effects, foreign body aspiration, tracheal or bronchial tumors or granulation tissue, dynamic airway collapse, tracheobronchomalacia, intrinsic narrowing of the airway, congenital or acquired stenosis, and extrinsic compression, vascular ring, mediastinal lymph nodes or masses.
These diagnoses should also be considered in patients whose wheezing fails to respond to appropriate medical treatment. Anaphylaxis and angioneurotic edema may cause wheezing at any age. Cough variant asthma, which is relatively uncommon, produces a chronic cough that may be triggered by exercise or noted primarily at night during sleep. Wheezing may or may not be present. Improvement with treatment with inhaled corticosteroids helps confirm the diagnosis. Clinical manifestations The presentations of asthma are varied. The history may be positive for wheezing and protracted cough with viral respiratory infections. Other possible signs and symptoms include prolonged respiratory infections, decreased exercise tolerance, and persistent day or nighttime coughing. Children with acute exacerbations present in respiratory distress with dyspnea, wheezing, subcostal retractions, nasal flaring, tracheal tugging, and a prolonged expiratory phase resulting from obstruction of airflow. Cyanosis is uncommon. The absence of wheezing, with poorly heard breath sounds, during an acute exacerbation is an ominous sign, indicating severe airway obstruction with very limited air movement. Mental status changes suggest significant hypercarbia and or significant hypoxemia with impending respiratory failure. Diagnostic evaluation Most children with asthma will have a normal physical examination when not in exacerbation. In children older than 6 years, pulmonary function tests, PFTs, can help delineate the degree of airflow obstruction at baseline and during exacerbations. However, most children with asthma will also have normal lung function when not acutely ill. An inhalation challenge test with an agent that induces bronchoconstriction in those with airway hyperreactivity, e.g., methicoline, can be useful in helping diagnose asthma. Patients with persistent asthma should have PFT at least once a year in order to monitor for change and to help adjust therapy. Baseline chest radiographs typically show mild hyperinflation and or increased bronchial markings. Peak flow, PF, monitoring may be useful for patients with moderate to severe asthma or those who poorly perceive their symptoms. PF meters are small, portable, and easy to use. They measure how fast a patient can forcibly expire air after a maximal inhalation. Decreased readings indicate obstruction to airflow. Reductions to 50% to 80% of predicted values indicate mild to moderate disease exacerbation. Readings less than 30% of predicted values are associated with severe obstruction. Unfortunately, peak flow meters are heavily dependent on technique and are therefore variably reliable. During acute exacerbations, the chest radiograph demonstrates significant hyperinflation and occasionally focal or subsegmental atelectasis, FIG, 8 to 1. CO2 retention can occur with fatigue and may be quite dramatic. Hypoxemia is usually less pronounced. Treatment with appropriate therapy and good adherence. Most patients with persistent asthma can remain symptom-free with few exacerbations. The most effective treatment involves removal of inciting agents, triggers, from the patient's environment and appropriate use of maintenance anti-inflammatory medication. Cigarette smoke should be strictly avoided. Limiting dust mite, mold, and pet exposure is beneficial to patients with an allergic component to their asthma. The National Institutes of Health has issued guidelines for the pharmacologic management of asthma based on disease severity and control, tables 8 to 5 and 8 to 6. The mainstays of medical maintenance therapy include inhaled corticosteroids, ICSs, beta-2 adrenergic agonists, and leukotriene receptor antagonists, LTRAs. Beta-2 agonists such as albuterol reduce smooth muscle constriction and can be administered via nebulization or metered dose inhalation. Longer-acting beta agonists, LABA, salbutamol, formoterol, in combination with ICS, may be used in patients who fail to achieve good control with ICS therapy alone. In older children and adolescents, the additive effect of the LABA may allow for lower doses of ICS. 
Long-acting beta agonists are not appropriate for monotherapy and should only be used in patients who cannot be controlled on ICS alone or with the addition of other anti-inflammatory medications. Short-acting beta-2 agonists are effective in preventing exercise-induced asthma if used 5 to 20 minutes before vigorous activity. The abuse of inhaled bronchodilators may result in some tolerance to their therapeutic effects. Inhaled corticosteroid therapy is the most effective treatment for chronic asthma and results in excellent control in the vast majority of patients. Topically active ICSs typically have very low systemic bioavailability and result in few systemic adverse effects. Options include beclomethasone, budesonide, fluticasone, and mometasone. Small measurable decreases in linear growth occur in children using daily inhaled corticosteroids. However, when budesonide and fluticasone are used at low doses, linear growth velocity declines initially but then rebounds, resulting in only a small reduction in final height. Has significant interactions with multiple other medications, and requires drug-level monitoring. It is presently reserved for use as an add-on therapy in patients who do not respond to conventional medications and is sometimes used in the intensive care setting as adjunctive treatment for severe exacerbations. Patients, greater than 12 years old, with severe allergic asthma that remains poorly controlled with use of inhaled corticosteroids, leukotriene receptor antagonists, and long-acting beta agonists may benefit from treatment with omelizumab, an injectable monoclonal antibody directed against IgE. This treatment is expensive and must be given every two to four weeks. Mild to moderate exacerbations are managed by the addition of short-acting inhaled bronchodilators to maintenance regimens. Additional steps may include quadrupling the dosage of inhaled steroids for 7 to 10 days or initiating a 5-day pulse of oral steroids. Moderate to severe exacerbations usually require an emergency department visit, and in some cases, hospitalization. Children who present to the emergency department in an acute asthma attack are initially assessed for airway patency, work of breathing, and ability to adequately oxygenate. Pulse oximetry is a simple, rapid screen for hypoxemia. Patients with persistent hypoxemia, SAU2, 92%, after initial treatment with a short-acting bronchodilator are likely to need more aggressive treatment and hospitalization. Patients in severe respiratory distress require blood gas measurements to assess for increasing PACO2, a sign of impending respiratory failure. A normal PACO2 in the face of tachypnea and fatigue is an equally ominous sign because the PACO2 should be well below 40 mm Hg in the patient with a rapid respiratory rate. Nebulized bronchodilators are administered frequently, every 20 minutes or continuously, for severe episodes. Delivery of inhaled beta agonists using a metered dose inhaler, MDI, with a valved holding chamber is as equally effective as using a nebulizer. Ipratropium, an anticholinergic agent, may provide additive relief of symptoms in those patients with the most severe obstruction, as measured by PEF or spirometry. The drug is usually given simultaneously with albuterol. Subcutaneous epinephrine or terbutaline can rapidly decrease airway obstruction in severely affected patients who may be too fatigued or incooperative to use inhaled albuterol. Corticosteroids, administered orally or intravenously, are indicated for treatment of acute exacerbations that fail to improve significantly after the first albuterol treatment in the emergency department. Children who do not respond with significant resolution of symptoms after several hours, i.e., children in status asthmaticus, and those who require ongoing oxygen therapy should be hospitalized for continued treatment and close observation. Despite advances in therapy, some patients still die from asthma. However, the mortality rate for asthma in children is relatively low in developed countries and has stabilized in the past several years. Factors that increase the risk of death include noncompliance, poor recognition of symptoms, delay in treatment, history of intubation, African-American race, and steroid dependence.
Cystic fibrosis Pathogenesis Cystic fibrosis, CF, is an inherited multisystem disease characterized by disordered exocrine gland function. The product of the cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator, CFTR, gene is a cell membrane protein that functions as a CAMP-activated chloride channel on the apical surface of epithelial cells in the respiratory tract, pancreas, sweat and salivary glands, intestines, and reproductive system. This channel is non-functional in patients with CF, so chloride remains sequestered inside the cell. Sodium and water are drawn into the cell to maintain ionic and osmotic balance, resulting in relative dehydration at the apical surface of the cell. This in turn results in abnormally viscid secretions and impairment of mucociliary clearance in the respiratory tract. Epidemiology CF is acquired through autosomal recessive inheritance, with a disease frequency of tilde 1 in 3,500 Caucasian births, much lower in other races. More than 1,000 distinct gene mutations on chromosome 7 have been described. 70% of known mutant alleles involve a single nucleotide deletion, the delta F508 mutation. The average life expectancy is currently in the mid to late 30s in developed countries and has increased dramatically in the past four decades. Clinical manifestations History and physical examination Table 8 to 7 lists the most common presenting signs and symptoms of CF. All levels of the respiratory tract may be affected, including the nasal passages, sinuses, and lower airways. Nasal polyps in any pediatric patient should prompt further testing for CF. Sinusitis or radiographic opacification of the sinuses are extremely common. Mucus stasis and ineffective clearance lead to bacterial colonization and frequent pneumonias. Typical early childhood pathogens include Staphylococcus aureus and Haemophilus influenzae. This is generally followed by colonization with Pseudomonas aeruginosa in late childhood and early adolescence. More than 90% of patients eventually acquire P. aeruginosa, and it is rarely eradicated. Colonization with Burkholderia capacia is particularly ominous and may be associated with accelerated pulmonary deterioration and early death. Other pathogens, often with multiple antibiotic resistance, are becoming more common as the population of CF patients ages. Gastrointestinal manifestations include pancreatic insufficiency, bowel obstruction and rectal prolapse, diabetes, and hepatic cirrhosis. Loss of pancreatic enzyme secretion leads to decreased fat absorption. Parents may notice that the child's stools are large, bulky, and foul-smelling. Later, stool becomes extremely dense, sometimes leading to distal intestinal obstruction. Failure to thrive is the most common manifestation of untreated CF in infants and children. Meconium ileus, neonatal intestinal obstruction in the absence of anatomic abnormalities, is virtually potanomonic for CF. Diagnostic evaluation the classic diagnostic findings in CF were related to the elevated sweat chloride concentration, pancreatic insufficiency, and chronic pulmonary disease. Recurrent lower airway infection results in bronchiectasis, fibrosis, parenchymal loss, and the characteristic bleb formation found on chest radiographs, FIG, 8-2. Pulmonary function tests demonstrate mostly obstructive and, later, some restrictive changes. The sweat chloride test is the initial diagnostic study of choice. A level greater than 60 MEQ-L is generally considered abnormal, but both false positives and false negatives occur, and occasionally a borderline test is hard to interpret. Sweat testing, though simple in concept, is difficult in practice, and should only be performed in specialized centers with experience and expertise. Genetic and prenatal testing are now available. The finding of two mutations at the CFTR site, known to produce disease, is considered diagnostic of CF. Some mutations produce less CFTR dysfunction, 
If at least 10% of normal CFTR activity is present, the individual may remain symptom-free. The availability of newborn screening has led to the identification of an increasing number of children with at least one mutation associated with CF but who do not meet the diagnostic criteria for CF otherwise. These children are said to have cystic fibrosis metabolic syndrome. Unfortunately, we do not know how to predict whether these children will eventually develop some disease manifestation. Treatment The most fundamental aspect of CF therapy is the maintenance of effective airway clearance. Chest physical therapy, vigorous exercise, and frequent coughing are helpful in mobilizing secretions. Bronchodilators relax smooth muscle walls and increase mucociliary clearance. Antibiotics decrease the production of bacterial toxins, reduce inflammation, and curb tissue destruction. Recombinant human deoxyribonuclease, administered via nebulization, breaks down thick DNA complexes present in mucus as a result of cell destruction and bacterial colonization. Alternate months of regular inhaled tobramycin may be indicated for patients infected with pseudomonas. More recently, azithromycin taken thrice weekly has been added as a possible immune, inflammatory modifier. Inhaled hypertonic saline may also improve airway clearance. Acute disease exacerbations may be triggered by viral or bacterial infections and are treated by more aggressive chest physical therapy and antibiotics, which may be taken orally or by inhalation if the exacerbation is mild and the organisms are not resistant. Frequently, however, bacterial infections must be treated with intravenous antibiotics, often in combination, depending on organism susceptibilities. Research aimed at correcting the specific gene mutation is currently underway. Patients often improve in clinical status during hospital admission for reasons that are not entirely clear but may in part involve improved adherence to prescribed therapy and reduced exposure to allergens and other irritants. Near-normal growth can often be achieved with pancreatic enzyme replacement, fat-soluble vitamin supplements, and high-calorie, high-protein diets. Nasogastric or gastrostomy tube feedings may be instituted if oral intake is inadequate. Maintenance of height and weight above the 25th percentile for age results in a better long-term prognosis. Many patients develop relative insulin deficiency and may benefit from insulin therapy, although type 1 diabetes is uncommon and ketoacidosis is rare. Prognosis continues to improve with aggressive treatment of pulmonary exacerbations and optimal nutritional support. Respiratory complications remain the major contributors to morbidity and mortality in CF. Hemoptysis is an alarming development that may occur in patients with severe bronchiectasis. Frequent coughing and inflammation lead to erosion of the walls of bronchial arteries in areas of bronchiectasis, and expectorated sputum becomes streaked with blood. Frank blood loss of more than 500 milliliters in 24 hours, or more than 300 milliliters per day for three days, is considered an emergency, often requiring bronchial arterial embolization. Spontaneous pneumothorax is another potentially life-threatening complication of CF. It is usually manifest by the sudden onset of severe chest pain and difficulty breathing. Placement of a chest tube results in rapid re-expansion, but approximately half of pneumothoraces recur unless pleurotesis is performed. Pleurotesis is generally avoided if possible because lung transplantation becomes more difficult following this procedure. Progressive airway obstruction and hypoxia in advanced disease can lead to chronic pulmonary hypertension in core pulmonale. For CF patients with a predicted life expectancy limited to 1 to 2 years, lung transplantation is a potentially viable option. Survival post-lung transplantation is currently on the order of 50% at 5 years. Primary ciliary dyskinesia Primary ciliary dyskinesia, PCD, is a group of recessive disorders of ciliary structure, function in which mucociliary clearance is markedly impaired because of ciliary dysfunction. 
failure to clear secretions leads to bronchial obstruction, sinusitis, chronic otitis media, and recurrent respiratory infections. Respiratory symptoms may be similar to those of CF or asthma. The diagnosis is made by demonstration of abnormal ciliary beat under light microscopy or characteristic ultrastructural changes in samples of ciliated cells obtained from scrapings of the nasal or bronchial epithelium. A minority of patients have identifiable genetic mutations, DNAI1 and DNAH5, that result in PCD. Treatment is similar to that of the pulmonary component of CF, although patients with PCD do not have the same propensity to infection with P. aeruginosa. Most patients with PCD develop bronchiectasis by the end of the second or third decade of life. Other causes of airway obstruction in children. Congenital abnormalities. Congenital tracheal stenosis is the result of tracheal cartilage rings that completely encircle the trachea and grow more slowly than the rest of the trachea. If the trachea is significantly narrowed, there may be a washing machine, type inspiratory and expiratory noise, as well as hypoxemia, failure to thrive, and other symptoms. More than 90% of patients with complete tracheal rings will require surgical intervention. The most effective technique is the slide tracheoplasty, and these patients should be thoroughly investigated for other congenital anomalies, especially the heart and great vessels, prior to surgery. The trachea and or main bronchi can be compressed by abnormal vascular structures, double aortic arch, aberrant left pulmonary artery, enlarged pulmonary arteries. A right aortic arch typically compresses the proximal right main bronchus. Children with these vascular anomalies may have wheezing or respiratory distress. Tracheomalacia is a common cause of expiratory airway obstruction in children and is due to a widening of the posterior membranous portion of the trachea with dynamic collapse during exhalation, if severe, or coughing or forced exhalation, if not as severe. The process may extend down one or both main bronchi. These children typically have a harsh, brassy, croupy cough and are often misdiagnosed as having recurrent croup. Esophageal atresia with tracheoesophageal atresia is a common cause of tracheomalacia. Most children with tracheomalacia require no intervention, but there are surgical procedures that may help some children. Wheezing due to tracheomalacia is often made worse by treatment with a bronchodilator, as it makes the posterior tracheal membrane more flaccid, and thus more likely to collapse during exhalation. A paradoxical response to bronchodilator treatment should always raise the suspicion of tracheomalacia. Bronchomalacia is the result of either poor cartilage, in central bronchi, or poor elastic recoil in the tissue surrounding the, more peripheral, bronchi, resulting in dynamic bronchial collapse on exhalation. These children typically have wheezing upon forced exhalation and fail to respond to bronchodilators or steroids, they are quite frequently misdiagnosed as having severe asthma. Congenital and dynamic airway anomalies are most conveniently and definitively diagnosed by bronchoscopy. The bronchoscopic evaluation must be performed under conditions that allow the diagnosis. Tracheomalacia or bronchomalacia may not be at all apparent if the bronchoscopy is performed with positive pressure ventilation or with very deep sedation, anesthesia. Restrictive lung diseases Restrictive lung diseases result from decreased compliance of the chest wall or of the lung itself. They cause a decrease in most measurements of lung volume, including functional residual capacity, tidal volume, and vital capacity. Restrictive lung disease is much less common in the pediatric population than obstructive pulmonary disorders. Pectus excavatum refers to a depression in the sternum, and pectus carinatum refers to an outward deformity. Severe congenital forms of these malformations may result in restrictive lung disease as a result of mechanical interference with normal respiration, but typically these deformities are more cosmetic than functional. Severe scoliosis will usually have a greater effect, with restriction as well as airway compression.
Marked obesity, in addition to being a risk for upper airway obstructive disease, may also be a cause of restrictive lung disease. Neuromuscular disease may result in restrictive lung disease as a consequence of insufficient respiratory muscle strength, Guillain-Barre syndrome, muscular dystrophy, spinal muscular atrophy. Any lesion that occupies intrathoracic space, if large enough, will interfere with normal pulmonary expansion. Pleural effusion, pericardial effusion, chylothorax, hemothorax, pneumothorax, chest wall tumors, mediastinal masses, congenital lobar emphysema, cystic adenomatous malformations, diaphragmatic hernias, and pulmonary sequestrations may all compete with normal lung for thoracic space, resulting in restrictive pulmonary compromise. Interstitial lung disease refers to disorders in which there is disease in the tissues of the lung outside the airways and alveoli. This usually results in decreased compliance and, therefore, restrictive physiology. A number of rare diseases can lead to interstitial changes, including chronic interstitial lung disease, desquamative interstitial pneumonitis, and sarcoidosis. Recurrent aspiration can also cause interstitial disease, as can acute chest syndrome in sickle cell disease, see Chapter 11. Pulmonary hemosiderosis involves an abnormal accumulation of hemosiderin in the lungs as a result of diffuse alveolar hemorrhage. It may be idiopathic or the result of problems which produce repeated bleeding into the lung. Diagnosis is based on the presence of hemosiderin-laden macrophages, siderophages, in bronchial washings or gastric aspirates. A specific cause of the bleeding should be sought. Clinical manifestations of pulmonary hemosiderosis may include hemoptysis, hematemesis and a microcytic hypochromic anemia with elevated reticulocyte counts. Many patients with hemosiderosis are mistakenly diagnosed clinically to have recurrent pneumonia. Symptoms of restrictive lung disease typically reflect decreased pulmonary compliance, which may not become clinically apparent until the process is relatively advanced. Exercise intolerance, tachypnea, and eventually dyspnea at rest are common. Space-occupying lesions may or may not be detected by chest auscultation, noting decreased breath sounds over the affected area, and may be seen on chest radiographs or even an echocardiogram. The chronic nature of many restrictive lesions can put patients at risk for developing prolonged respiratory insufficiency. Pulmonary hypertension may develop. An accentuated pulmonic component of the second heart sound may be heard, but echocardiography is usually the diagnostic method of choice. Clubbing of fingers and toes may be noted. Aspiration syndromes. The primary purpose of the larynx is to protect the lower airways from aspiration of liquids and or solids. Vocal cord closure and cough are both vitally important protective reflexes, and failure of either can result in aspiration. Aspiration of liquids, saliva, ingested liquids, or gastric contents resulting from reflux, leads to cough, bronchospasm, inflammation, infection, and, if persistent, to bronchiectasis and lung destruction. Decreased sensation, impaired vocal cord mobility, or structural defects, laryngoesophageal cleft, tracheoesophageal fistula, can result in aspiration. The acute, accidental aspiration of a solid object is surprisingly common in young children, prime age 1 to 4 years, and results in coughing, choking, perhaps respiratory distress. Witnessed aspiration events are not usually difficult diagnostic challenges, but most events are not witnessed, and the physician must be suspicious. Sudden onset of symptoms such as wheezing or coughing out of context with the child's previous history should lead to suspicion. Radiographic studies are important but often not definitive, especially if the aspirated object is not radio-opaque. The radiologist should be made aware of the suspicion before the studies are done. Bronchoscopy may be necessary for definitive diagnosis or exclusion, and rigid bronchoscopy is indicated for removal of a known foreign body.
small foreign bodies can remain in the lower airways for years, causing persistent, recurrent pneumonia, atelectasis, chronic cough, and, eventually, bronchiectasis. The diagnosis of recurrent aspiration can be supported by radiographic, video swallow, or endoscopic studies. There is no definitive marker for aspiration, unless the aspiration is directly observed. Children with uncontrolled gastroesophageal reflux are at risk for aspiration and often have persistent, recurrent respiratory symptoms, cough, wheeze, recurrent pneumonias. Apnea of infancy. Apnea is defined as the cessation of breathing for longer than 20 seconds or pauses of any duration associated with color changes, cyanosis, pallor, hypotonia, decreased responsiveness, or bradycardia. It may be central, neurally mediated, obstructive, or mixed. Apnea is not a diagnosis but a potentially dangerous sign requiring aggressive evaluation to define the underlying cause. In contrast to apnea of prematurity, apnea of infancy occurs in full-term infants. Table 8 to 8 lists some of the more common potential causes. Apnea of infancy may come to medical attention after an apparent life-threatening event, ALTE. Altes are very frightening to the caretaker. The infant either stops breathing or is found apneic and may be cyanotic or pale, hypotonic, difficult to rouse, or choking and gagging. The observer often believes that the child would have died without intervention, vigorous stimulation, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. The goal of the diagnostic workup is to identify or rule out any treatable, life-threatening causes. Table 8 to 8 lists potential tests to be considered depending on the results of the history and physical examination. In approximately half the cases of apnea of infancy, no predisposing condition is ever found. Management involves treating the underlying disorder. When no treatable cause can be found, the infant may be placed on a home monitor that senses chest movement, breathing, and heart rate and sounds an alarm when the child becomes apneic or bradycardic. Apnea of infancy does not raise an infant's risk of dying of sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS, which may be why home monitors have never been proven to decrease the likelihood of SIDS. Key points Infants with bilateral coanalatresia often present with life-threatening respiratory distress in the delivery room, although oxygenation improves when the infant is crying. Severe obstructive sleep apnea can result in core pulmonale which may be fatal. The three main components of asthma are reversible airway obstruction, increased airway responsiveness, and inflammation. Disease severity is classified before the onset of treatment as intermittent, mild persistent, moderate persistent, and severe persistent, although control of disease at any severity level is a more important concept. Inhaled bronchodilators are the treatment of choice in an acute asthma exacerbation. Inhaled corticosteroids are the treatment of choice for symptom control and avoidance of exacerbations for patients with persistent asthma. The disappearance of wheezing with increased respiratory distress signals increased obstruction rather than improvement. Cystic fibrosis, CF, is a disorder of exocrine gland function, affecting the lungs, sinuses, pancreas, sweat and salivary glands, intestines, and reproductive system. Failure to thrive, chronic cough, and malabsorptive stools are the most common presentations of CF in children. Meconium. Ileus in the neonate is virtually potanomonic for CF. A diagnosis of CF is made by an elevated sweat chloride level in the presence of pulmonary disease, pancreatic insufficiency or by a genotype with two abnormal CFTR alleles known to cause disease. Apnea of infancy does not increase the risk of sudden infant death, and the use of home apnea monitors does not reduce the risk of SIDS. Persistent wheezing that does not respond to conventional medical treatment should raise strong suspicion of anatomic abnormalities or an aspirated foreign body.